Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Two sociologists join me on today's show to talk about the changing face of work and working conditions under neoliberalism. First, Nicole Ashoff, sociologist, author of The New Profits of Capital, and until very recently managing editor of Jacobin magazine, speaks with me about why globalization shouldn't be solely blamed for the destruction of good jobs and why it is nevertheless in crisis. Next, Mike McCarthy, assistant professor of sociology at Marquette University, discusses his recent book, Dismantling Solidarity, about how the pension system has been transformed in ways that leave workers more vulnerable. Here's my conversation with Nicole Ashoff. I I want to take this interview in kind of two directions based on two relatively recent articles that you wrote for Jacobin. And I, I think they're tied together because they both undermine a sort of popular narrative of globalization's inevitability. And I, I want to start with the earlier piece um, on the auto industry, which I know has been a past research interest of yours. So there's the simple story that globalization caused massive economic dislocation in the U.S. and other places. And looking at auto, you challenged this story. What's, what's your challenge? Well, there's a couple of interesting points there. One is that the the basic point that globalization has devastated communities and it has destroyed a lot of U.S.-based manufacturing jobs is not incorrect. That's true, um, particularly in industries like uh, apparel, footwear, small electronics, a lot of the furniture industry. But it's not universally true, um, particularly for uh, sort of white goods, um, complicated machinery, and of course, auto, which is uh, kind of what I studied for my dissertation and postdoctoral research. And the reason why I got into it is not necessarily because I care about cars, uh, but because it's a good way to understand restructuring uh, in both the U.S. and the global economy. And one of the things that I found as I started to dig into it is that The restructuring in the industry is a lot more complicated than this simple kind of race to the bottom narrative of all the good jobs are leaving for cheaper uh, locales, even though that is a common threat that's made by U.S. uh, and Canadian auto industries uh, when it comes to contract time. So really, when you when you get down to, you know, looking at kind of where cars are made, uh, you see that most the vast majority of them particularly in the U.S. context, are are still made in the United States. For example, if you look at um, the U.S. auto market, uh, last year we sold about 17.5 million cars, and about 70% of those were made in the United States. Uh, and this is, this, is a, this is actually a kind of number that's held pretty steady um, over the last you know, three decades. We see ups and downs. It's a super cyclical industry, um, but we can't sort of point to jobs moving offshore uh, to countries like Mexico as an easy explanation for why we don't have good jobs in the industry anymore. So I think just to sum it up, we have deunionization. That's certainly true, but it's not simply the result of deindustrialization. As you said, a lot of cars are still made in the U.S. and Canada, but the industry looks a lot different than it did in the 1950s, say. How has the industry in North America restructured itself, especially in moving to different parts 
of the U.S. And what has this had to do with breaking the power of other unions as a political project, which which you just started to mention? Well, I mean, the industry, the way this, if you want to term it, if you want to phrase it in terms of the production footprint of the industry, that has changed. Um, and and it's, it's changed over a very long period of time, a process of change that long predates NAFTA. And it, it, we could sum it up as kind of um, a regional integration of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and a kind of stretching of the kind, this kind of auto production corridor coming from Canada down through the United States, connecting through the U.S. South uh, and to Mexico. And you can see this kind of, if you map out production, you can see this kind of interesting corridor. What we haven't seen is a simple kind of move from the traditional auto-producing regions in, say, the Midwest around the Great Lakes to the U.S. South uh, or Canada or, or, or Mexico. Uh, what we see is a kind of stretching, and we see still a lot of production happening in the traditional regions. You know, in Windsor, for example, in uh, Michigan, these kinds of regions still see a huge amount of, of auto production. So we see a restructuring and a kind of regional integration. So parts and, you know, the, the sort of necessary components for cars will travel several times across borders before they end up as a final product. So we see this sort of deep kind of qualitative integration uh, rather than a kind of picking up production and moving it from, say, the U.S. Great Lakes to the U.S. South where wages are lower. And nevertheless, we've seen the good jobs maybe not totally evaporate but definitely a change in working conditions. Uh, in Canada, and as far as I understand, also in the US, we've seen a lot more use of two-tiering, three-tiering, so um, you know, different people doing the same job, but for much worse conditions when they come in, in terms of wages and benefits. How have these changes occurred, despite the industry not being open to these kinds of peer pressures of globalization, or, or even moving from one part of the country to the other? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the uh, the conditions of working, I mean, working in the auto industry has always been, you know, a pretty difficult and, and terrible job. It is, it, over the years, unions were able to turn, you know, what were really dirty, dangerous, precarious, uh, low paid jobs into something slightly better. They were, they were better paid. Um, workers had pretty good health and pension benefits and, you know, they had a little bit more kind of power and, and respect in the workplace. Uh, but this has really been eroded in recent years. And I think one of the difficult things and why the globalization narrative is such a popular explanation is that the auto industry is extremely cyclical. So you have booms where everyone is doing great. Uh, you know, we're producing a ton of cars, we're adding jobs. And then you see these sort of free fall crises in the industry periodically where a bunch of workers are laid off. You see production uh, plummet and you have, you know, everyone's sort of wondering about what's going to happen in the future. And I think what happens is particularly in the early 80s, you see this real moment of crisis and it's um, and in sort of embedded in a much broader crisis in the United States in particular, and it becomes an opportunity um, for auto companies and also the U.S. government to say, look, the gains that you auto workers have 
uh, achieved are not sustainable and you really need to start, you know, uh, taking a cut and being willing to, you know, give back and make concessions. And so this kind of, you know, as we have this crisis, we see jobs being lost, you know, in the 80s and, and also earlier. Uh, and we have this moment where auto unions are really put on the on the back foot. And this is something that continues to happen even as the industry recovers, right, in the late 80s. And then we see another boom in the early 90s, uh, recovers. We have crisis, um, you know, around 2000. Uh, it recovers. Then we have, you know, it's this very cyclical thing, but we don't see a recovery of the conditions for workers. And there's a variety of reasons uh, why that's the case. Globalization is only one of them. Right. And, and what are some of these other reasons? And maybe bringing up to the present, what are some of the ways that someone like Trump is able to exploit uh, exploit them and that a lot of the political establishment in the U.S. is unable to speak to them? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a number of reasons. One is uh, restructuring in the industry, which partly, you know, we can say that some of that is moving production. A lot of it is just actually just eliminating jobs entirely. Uh, we see a, a very we see a steady decline in the number of workers that it actually takes to produce an, an increasing number of automobiles. So we see technological advances. We can point to also um, you know the role of the state, both the U.S. government and the Canadian government, um, in actually uh, you know more um, strongly siding with. Uh, auto companies in their demands to cut costs. Uh, this is part of the ideological shift that we can broadly call neoliberalism, uh, but we also see it in a more sort of nitty-gritty uh, particular instances, such as, for example, after the 2008 financial crisis in the United States, we see the U.S. Treasury really playing a really strong role in telling uh, U.S. auto workers that they need to, you know, raise the cap on temporary workers, allow, uh, you know, the normalization of a whole second tier workforce. You know, this is just one example where we see the U.S., you know, state really playing a role in degrading the conditions of, uh, you know, workers, auto workers. But we also have to look at the behavior of the union in the United States, the the United Auto Workers. Uh, There are a number of other unions as well. We need to look at the behavior of the unions and the kinds of choices and decisions they made over time when we see these kinds of boom and bust cycles we see a broad kind of sweeping restructuring of the industry you know what is the union actually doing and i think here you can point to a a couple different you know very broadly speaking a couple different things that happened one is that we kind of see this tightening of boundaries about who is going to be protected by the union and who gets to be, you know, uh, out of the circle. So we can start to point to a variety of actors, right? If we think about the the state, the companies, the workers, and look, it's a, it's a, it's a more complicated story than just a simple kind of globalization story. I, th- I think this is a good point to shift gears a little bit and go to your more, more recent stuff on Trump, because I think... A similar vein is that it also challenges a narrative about globalization's inevitability. And I think it's interesting in your piece in Jacobin, you argue that Trump represents a breakdown on some key aspects of neoliberalism, and particularly those around globalization and trade, the the sort of external-facing aspects. 
I was hoping you could exp- you'd start by explaining what you mean by that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I was just reading the news this morning, and because Trump is constantly saying things, and then the next day saying something radically different. So, of course, um, so there's two points. I'll just the broader point is, and that I tried to make in in my most recent piece is that. Trump is sort of the effect of a deeper crisis within neoliberalism. And a lot of his popularity and ultimately his uh, election to the office of U.S. president, uh, I think, is indicative of a deeper kind of legitimacy crisis of the ideas and practices of neoliberalism. And now we can say, you know, Trump criticized sort of key elements of the last kind of 30 years of of neoliberal consensus, one of which is uh, this idea of free trade uh, exemplified by NAFTA. So Trump promises during his his election that he's going to tear up that agreement, says it's very, very bad uh, for the U.S., for companies, for workers. Um, Yesterday, he again says he was going to tear up the agreement. uh, Or joking. Yesterday, yes, and then he talks to you know uh, Trudeau and and Pena Nieto and says no 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 it's fine I won't get rid of it. Uh, this is sort of the way that he operates. Um, so I think you have to sort of separate uh, his rhetoric right and what he's doing, and actually think about how that fits within the, this kind of broader crisis of neoliberalism, which I think exists. Him kind of stepping back from his campaign rhetoric doesn't mean that there's not a, a, a sort of deep crisis uh, that, that is, is, is at play. Right. And, and why is this deep crisis coming out of, as a crisis of globalization or as globalization being presented as a kind of political crisis? And as you say, it's not just Trump because, you know, people like Marine Le Pen in France are latching onto this part of the neoliberal agenda it really seems like you're getting at something that's uh, an important site of of this kind of breakdown. Yeah, well, I, and, and I think to answer that question, we have to take a sort of broader view quickly, which is to say that uh, globalization and uh, the things that we associate with neoliberalism, like increased marketization, privatization of, uh, you know, the role of uh, the state in particular parts of the economy, the liberalization of trade flows and capital flows uh, between countries, these kinds of policies and ideas were presented as a solution to the crisis of the late 1970s. You know, over time, kind of ad hoc, but taken all together, they, they, they were presented as a solution, which has been the consensus solution for the past three decades. Uh, you know, when, when, when we're faced with economic stagnation or unemployment, the solution has always been the same thing. Well, we need to, you know, make it easier for companies to invest. We need to make them, um, you know, more flexible. Workers need to just adapt. This has been presented as the solution. But over the long run or the medium run, as it were, this has not worked, uh, for, <laughs> to put it bluntly, for ordinary people. So if it's both the case that globalization is not inevitable and has been part of a political project, and at the same time this project is in crisis, but it is in crisis from the right, 
or or the figures representing the the crisis are largely those of the far right even where does that leave us what what kind of realignment of elite policymaking can we expect and what should be the posture of the left in return well we should be i think we should be wary um particularly in the united states of the kind of right-wing narrative of what's wrong uh, and how to fix it, um, whether it's what's wrong with globalization or what's wrong with uh, neoliberalism, because that, those are not, uh, I think that the, the goals for um, sort of making people's lives better are not the same uh, on the right and the left, to, to put it very crudely. Um, so I think the left actually, the left has its own critique of globalization, and it's not necessarily that we should have a kind of nationalist, xenophobic, I mean, not, it's not at all that we should have a nationalist kind of xenophobic worldview. It's to say, and nor that we shouldn't have kind of, you know, cross-border trade and communication and all of these types of things. It's to say that these types of projects, uh, you know, inter international integration should be designed to make people's lives better, not destroy their livelihoods and communities, uh, which is a very basic way of saying, you know, we need to fight against these things uh, at the level of the workplace and also, you know, in projects to build political power to actually represent working class interests. That was sociologist Nicole Ashoff on globalization, the auto industry and Trump. Next, another sociologist, Mike McCarthy, on the changing face of pensions. So, Mike, you just wrote a book about pensions, and as a political economist, that gets me excited. But I know that for most people, uh, even most activists and people on the left, just the thought of pensions makes their eyes glaze over. Why should we care about pensions? And not just individuals who will one day, hopefully, retire, but as a political issue. Why should we care about pensions as a political issue? Well, there's there's a number of reasons why. Um, one is that uh, politically, um, pensions are pensions are a really important way of of actually uh, lessening lessening the tie that 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 people have to to the market, right? That that sort of they they provide a certain amount of income um, after we've uh, after we've tired that retired that you know ideally we can live off of. Um, and that's an important that's an important sort of thing that kind of gives people, you know, an opportunity to exit the market at some point in their life so they can uh, they can live happily without needing to work. So it's it's they're they're an impre- incredibly important sort of tool for achieving that. They're not the only tr- tool, of course. I mean, you can have uh, um, a larger social security system, for instance, a uh, uh, larger public uh, role of the public um public uh, resources for, for uh, providing security in people's retirement. And that's more ideal, but, f- but for, mo- for most people, um, especially in the U.S. and also Canada, uh, to, a, to, the, to a similar degree, um, the U.K., uh, private pensions are, are kind of a, an, important, an important source of uh, income in retirement. Um, <clears throat> they're also a massive uh, pool of, of capital. So they have they have a um, importance beyond just providing retirement security for people. In in, in the U.S., um, pension funds control about 25% of all American uh, corporate e- equity. 
um, uh, which which means that they play a, an, an incredible uh, role in the stock market. Um, they play an incredible role in sort of making comp- certain companies look more attractive to lenders and other companies less uh, through their influence on stock prices. Um, and so they, they, they have an importance beyond simply uh, the retirement issue. They're, they're kind of a, at this point now, they're a fundamental feature of, of, of capitalism, um, yeah. not just in the U.S., but, you know, across the advanced um, capitalist world. I want to get into that aspect in a second, um, not just in the U.S., but also in Canada, where, where, where pensions are acting more and more like typical investors. But I wanted to start with your book. Uh, which is titled Dismantling Solidarity, and see if you could summarize the main arc of the argument. Why are pensions a form of solidarity, and who dismantled them? Okay, yeah. Well, there's there's kind of one dominant trend that we can see if we look at the development of ret- retirement security over the, you know, the past 60, 70, 80 years, really going on all the way back to the New Deal in the 1930s. And that's that uh, each kind of subsequent major transformation in the retirement system since the New Deal has elevated the role of capitalist markets in the distribution of retirement income. So uh, we, we see that basically after World War II, there's a real option to sort of expand out um, Social Security in the U.S. to sort of uh, make the, the uh, Social Security program uh, more robust um, and instead, uh, private pensions are adopted as an alternative, uh, primarily collectively bargained plans. After that, we see sort of the formation of these very large pension funds, um, again, very often collectively bargained, um, which were essentially large pools of assets um, that can be used really in all sorts of different ways. And, and what we see happen to those assets is they get sort of tied to financial markets which tie um, workers' security to um, Wall Street. Then, in the, then, then next, we basically see the rise of what are, what are called uh, divine contribution plans, things like 401ks, replacing those earlier defined benefit, traditionally you know, collectively bargained plans. So, the, so kind of the puzzle of the book is that we see this, this large historical transformation that's kind of decades long, um, moving more and more towards uh, – uh, the, our retirement security system towards um, market mechanisms as the solutions to uh, retirement problems. So what the book tries to do is it tries to understand why. What, what's, what, is, what has been the sort of um, the, the core causes of that, of that shift? Um, I, think, I think it's an important question to a- answer, not just, not just as a historical sociologist who's curious about how policymaking happens and all that, but, to, but it's important because um, – Understanding why we have that we've we've made that shift provides insight into sort of the current situation right now for retirement security. I mean, if if you if you were to look at sort of the the impact of the 2008 crisis, um, what you'd see is that um, you know bet- between basically October uh, 2007 and October 2008, U.S. stocks plummet about. 37.5% or so. And that triggers um, financial chaos in, in sort of uh, retirement plans, both in the U.S. but around the world. Uh, 401ks and uh, individual retirement accounts, IRAs, lost about $2.4 trillion that year, whereas the OECD as a total lost um, $5.4. And uh, 
this 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 really shows precisely how precarious people's retirement is because uh, many people um, that 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 were reliant on 401ks and and IRAs and that year end today saw large large chunks of their savings essentially vanish right um, they lost massive amounts of money you know they were they were at a double disadvantage they were gonna um, at risk of lo- losing their job and also um, at risk of uh, losing their retirement and so it's it's you know it's 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 a it's the the sort of reliance on the market makes increases the precarity of 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 working people who kind of just want a stable retirement income when they when they go in retirement um, and we haven't and there's been some talk that you know we, we, since the stock market's recovered uh, 401ks have recovered and everything's great again um, and that's that's really misleading um, Ob- the Obama administration was the you know they were primarily pushing this line and uh, on average on average, um, it is true that these retirement accounts, things like 401ks, recovered their lost assets. Uh, but uh, you know, averages actually can be quite misleading because it turns out that 45% of people that have 401ks actually saw uh, saw more losses. And um, and even those ones that did uh, recover assets are are about five years behind where they should be. In, in sort of the accumulation of their of their retirement fund. So, I mean, that essentially means that you're going to have to wait longer before you go into retirement. So you're going to accumulate more money. So that's that's kind of the that's that's the importance, you know, like why why it matters that things have been so marketized. Um, but the core the core point of the book is to try to try to really explain this historical shift. And in as short a space as possible for this format, uh, what are some of the what are some of these broad reasons? It seems to fit into this broader agenda of neoliberalism, which is, of course, a loose, vague term. But what you describe in terms of pensions, greater marketization, greater reliance on the individual rather than the public, seems to fit into this decades-long trend and uh, this kind of transition sometime in the 70s and early 80s. Right, right. I mean, it actually begins much, much earlier than that. Um, really after, right after World War II. Um, and if, if you kind of, if you were to boil it down to sort of like, you know, as, as, as short, as short an explanation as possible, really the core drive of this transformation is, um, is politicians who at different points in American history are intervening into, um, industrial relations, intervening into labor management conflicts. Uh, not to actually um, help install a certain kind of retirement system, they weren't uh, they weren't really concerned about sort of four hundred one ks or 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 private pensions or or any of that. But rather, it was to um, their inter- interventions into, into retirement was really to help manage and uh, promote economic growth. And so we we see we see this long term historical development as kind of um, it's kind of like an unintentional outcome of policymakers trying to promote economic growth at various points in American history and try to trying to avoid uh, economic crises. Um, this is kind of true across Republican, Democrat. Uh, it doesn't matter the poli- poli- political ideology. Um, they're, they're basically uh, doing similar things um, at different times. I thought I would find a story simply about, you know, capitalists become more more powerful they have a vision of retirement security that they that they that they install. 
but really um, we see that that the state plays a really important role in this, almost um, almost the primary role. Um, but the state actors themselves are are they're primarily concerned with um, managing capitalism. As a result, that's how you get this uh, marketization over time. Right. That that's fascinating. What's what's an example of this? This uh, this kind of secondary effect, as you say. Yeah. Well, I'll give. Uh, uh, the first example, for instance, is is right after, right after World War II, right? You have uh, you have this this adoption of private pensions that um, that happens quite rapidly. Um, uh, unions are winning uh, collectively bargained plans in addition to higher wages and all this stuff. Uh, one one sort of take on that, and, and it's kind of the widespread one, is that oh well, unions were in a better bargaining position. They had more power, and they won them, you know, with their because they had better leverage over over firms. Well, actually, when you look at the historical archive and you look at um, the record, uh, that doesn't happen at all. That, that actually, after World War II, even though even though unions had gone on the largest strike wave uh, to history um, in history to that point, uh, they had they actually had very weak leverage over firms. There was a there was a rapid decline in demand for for uh, wartime goods. Which allowed many firms to just like let their stock and equipment sit idle, and uh, and those firms that did want uh, to keep their stuff up and running, there was all sorts of uh, incoming returning soldiers that they could hire as uh, um, basically uh, strike breakers. So so what what we actually see after World War II is is the Truman administration intervening in these labor conflicts, trying to trying to basically force a labor peace. Uh, with state power, um, they did this in a major strike between the United Mine Workers um, and and a number of coal operators, which basically resulted in uh, uh, the state seizure of the mines, where they they forced the operators and and the, the United Mine Workers to sort of agree on a contract. Um, and by the way, the the mine workers nor the coal operators wanted the state to get involved in their dispute. They kind of came in against their both of their wishes, um, and, it's, and it happened sort of repeatedly after that. And, and this pattern of, of, of intervention basically um, ended up making uh, collectively bargained plans a fact. And why they did that, why Truman did that, was because Truman and, and, and the rest of the American state saw, saw opportunities in war-torn Europe and, and Japan – to essentially expand American capitalism um, more significantly um, out, out of its borders, to sort of establish American capitalism as globally um, hegemonic, and they had the they had the foresight to, to to know that they needed to have production up and running to do that. Um, you can you basically can see this in in congressional testimony in, in speeches to the public, where um, where uh, you know. Truman and other policymakers are saying against directly against the wishes of both of both major manufacturers and labor that um, that you know we need to sort of uh, we need to sort of quell this labor peace stuff I mean quell these strikes um, and 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 force these agreements um, which which oftentimes went to labor's benefit so that's 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 one example you and and basically you see that repeated over and over again. Um, the state getting involved to, to promote capitalist growth, the the sort of the the effect of that is changes in in, in social policies. And uh, where is the breaking point, or where is 
is it sort of a slow transition from the post post-war era that saw the creation of pension plans and specifically defined benefit plans to a slow erosion of them? Uh, I mean, basically you, you, there's a number of these key, these key moments that push, push the pension plan, pension system, but the private pension system in particular more towards market mechanisms. Um, this post-war kind of crisis in production being one. Um, but if you, you know, to sort of, to say, well, what, you know that was kind of what explains the the installment of, of these collectively bargained plans. But you could ask the same question about well, why why did we eventually turn to uh, defined contribution four hundred one k plans? Where did they come from? Well, it's actually uh, they actually have a somewhat similar cl- cause. Um, uh, in the 1970s, for instance, uh, there was a ma- major um, inflation crisis. Uh, I think inflation had reached uh, um, above 30, 13% at one point. And, um, you know, pol- policymakers saw this as a, as a major, major problem. It was sort of eroding the dollar. It was uh, hurting our, 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 our trade, um, what we were getting out of trade. It was uh, hurting thrift industries. It was kind of um, wreaking um, havoc, at least as according to their perspective on American capitalism and wall street in particular really wanted sort of uh, the value of the dollar um, um, strengthened. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, and what, and at the time policymakers, they, they, they saw very explicitly uh, uh, labor as the main cause of this. They had this, they had this um, what's called a cost push theory of inflation which was basically the idea that, um, well, to explain inflation, um, it's really the result of wages kind of being bid up too high and unions kind of uh, having too much power over wage bargaining. Um, you know, it had, had nothing to do with the amount of money in the, in, in the, in the economy. Nobody, nobody actually believed that. Um, and so the government very explicitly instituted a number of policies to try to, try to weaken labor um, to try to sort of uh, under undercut their ability to uh, uh, you know bargain up higher wages, did this through through a lot of a lot of means. You know, most most famously the Volcker shocks, where the Fed increases a uh, um, in- increases the um, not interest rates, but it increases a uh, gosh, my, yes, uh, in in order to sort of like force firms to to you know tighten their belts or whatever. Well, one of the, one of the other ways that um, that sort of policymakers, in particular Reagan, this is when Reagan's in power now, um, go after unions and weaken unions is actually by strengthening uh, regulations on pension funds. It was the it was unions that that had sort of a lot of control over their pension funds that were also the same unions that that policymakers saw as driving up the wages, like unions like the Teamsters. So they basically strengthen pay pension funds. They make uh, the, the regulations governing them, uh, make it, uh, making them uh, more costly to administer, um, defined benefits in particular. Um, these these regulations never covered 401ks, for instance. And uh, and the kind of the outcome of this was was that um, it was much more costly to administer a, a, a pension. And new new firms that were sort of um, 
coming about in the 1980s and 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 in subsequent years um, saw the increased administrative costs for uh, adopting a pension, um, and many simply didn't didn't offer one. Either they didn't offer one at all, or they they started to offer these things called 401ks, which which w- weren't even intended to be pensions. Um, and uh, and so it's kind of it's kind of again it's like this is this shift is triggered by policymakers basically trying to manage capitalism, trying to sort of govern for capitalism. Um, and I mean, nobody even knew what a 401k was before, before it just kind of appeared. It wasn't, you know, it's this something that's kind of a key feature of neoliberalism. It wasn't like this, uh, this plan, you know, there was no, uh, there was no, um, there was no sort of meeting at the chamber of commerce where they, where they said, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this and win it. It just kind of, it, it kind of happened, um, almost accidentally in a way. I want to bring things up to the present day and ask you about something you mentioned right at the beginning. And it's something that affects Canada as well. Uh, And since this is a Canadian show, I uh, might as well. So here in Canada, we still have a higher percentage of workers than in the U.S. who still have decent employer pensions, even though it's far, far too few. And we're seeing some of the same transformations. But we definitely see a different kind of problem with those good pensions that still exist that they get turned over to investment managers who then use for example the money of public sector workers in Ontario to privatize public services in Nova Scotia and drive down the working conditions of public sector workers there so how are pe- pension funds implicated in financialization and how is this 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 seems to just be another layer onto this transformation that these funds now become instead of this, you know, what people once thought was going to be labor's capital, that we kind of take over some chunk of capital administered in our interest, uh, that they're actually being used to further undermine workers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A, lo- a lot of that has to do with uh, legal constraints on pension fund managers. Uh, I mean, as I, as I understand it, um, much of the much of the rules that kind of are used to govern Canadian pension funds are are quite similar to the to the rules in the U.S. Um, and and what we what we what we've seen is and you know it's kind of an interesting story because people talk about financialization as being kind of a phenomena that emerges in the 1970s or 1980s, but it's actually pension funds where financialization really first occurs on a sort of very, you know, big level. And that in the U S goes back to the mid 1950s, 1960s. Um, basically, you know, as soon as these pension plans were installed, um, unions, unions saw them as, as being something that they should try to control. Um, all of the major unions in the U S not only tried to win pension plans, but actually tried to manage them too. Um, and a key key rule in the Taft-Hartley law passed in 1947 was specifically aimed to stop this from happening. Um, uh, folks in folks in Congress um, uh, kind of said explicitly in a number of uh, number of cases that if uh, if unions were to be able to win these win control over these funds, they'd basically become a war chest. You know, they would. Uh, they would, they would, they would be, they, they would end up strengthening unions like, you know, tra- dramatic, dramatically. 
And so they in- instituted rules, um, you know, going back all the way to the uh, mid to late 1940s that basically kept unions from being able to control their, their funds. The rule in Taft-Hartley keeps unions from, from being able to, co- to control more than um, uh, 49% of the seats on a pension board. Um, so basically, um, employers have to control at least half, uh, and employers can control all of them. Um, so that kind of that kind of uh, weakened weakened labor, and 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 what we saw as as a result of that is, and you know what's still going on, is that um, you know labor's capital, as you said, has been used used in ways um, that have that have actually fundamentally contributed to the race race to the bottom. Uh, and labor standards, not just in the U.S. or Canada, but also globally. Um, you know, it's the way these funds are, are managed and invested are kind of, uh, all, you know, typically they're 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 done with the what's called the prudent person rule uh, in mind, which basically means you can't invest these funds in ways that pr- um, prioritize social considerations over investment returns. Um, which is kind of a weird rule because when you think about it, what's an investment other than a, a gamble, right? Yeah. You don't actually know what you're going to get. And so the, the way that these, the way these fund, the, you know, the way investment has been policed and, and regulated by the courts has, has been to sort of um, look at how pension funds are investing and then compare them to uh, best practices in finance by, by mutual funds and things like that. And so what you find is that um, as uh, over time, the different kinds of investments that pensions move towards, you know, how they how they allocate their their portfolios, um, it changes and it kind of mimics um, um, what happens in on Wall Street. So even before even before the uh, you know the 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 2008 crash, you saw pension funds that were invested in some subprime mortgages and things like that. So you you have you have funds that are that are managed in, in a way where you have where they're they're supposed to be chasing risk for returns. Um, the outcome of that is is that in fact pension funds have underperformed, like they haven't even achieved that. Um, but in addition to that, they've been they've been used in ways that actually hurt workers. So, um, for instance, uh, a large a large percent of of American pension funds, and I, 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 this is true in Canada as well. It's also this is also true of labor-sponsored invest, investment funds of, in Canada um, are actually invested in, co- in corporations that are explicitly anti-union. You know that that don't uh, don't have unionized workforces and that resist union union campa- campaigns. A large a large chunk of this money is invested in companies that um, employ. Um, Basically, have highly exploitative labor regimes overseas, where they're employing employing people and paying them, you know, nickels and dimes. And so, what what you get is kind of the perverse outcome, where where you have this massive pool of investment. You know, I mean, I I find I think it's a great of great potential to the labor movement to to try to try to control it. But you have this massive pool of investment, which which is basically rewarding companies. That are the most egregious violators of of labor standards, yeah. and don't even add on to that sort of environmental environmental environmentally destructive companies and companies that are engaged in war profit profiteering and all that. Um, so it's kind of a it's it's a bit of a perverse outcome um, that these this, these pools of, of of capital have been used in ways that 
um, that actually hurt workers. I want to bring things up to the present day and ask you about something you mentioned right at the beginning. And it's something that affects Canada as well. Uh, and since this is a Canadian show, I uh, might as well. So here in Canada, we still have a higher percentage of workers than in the U.S. who still have decent employer pensions, even though it's far, far too few. And we're seeing some of the same transformations. But we definitely see a different kind of problem with those good pensions that still exist, that they get turned over to investment managers who then use, for example, the money of public sector workers in Ontario to privatize public services in Nova Scotia and drive down the working conditions of public sector workers there. So how are pension funds implicated in financialization? And how is this... This this seems to just be another layer onto this transformation that these funds now become instead of this, you know, what people once thought was going to be labor's capital, that we kind of take over some chunk of capital and administer it in our interest, uh, that they're actually being used to further undermine workers. I th- I think the I- the ideal and something we should we should we should be oriented towards is uh, is a more robust. Uh, state pensions, which are um, equitably distributed and um, universally access- accessible. Um, that's there's I, I I think it's I think there's a deep immorality to uh, reproducing inequalities in in um, people's retirement lives when they're not even working. So I I'm in favor of a, of a system which is you know public, um, and so I would. That's what I want to. I I think we should be fighting to move back towards that ideal that we've been sort of moving away from, bit by bit here in the U.S. since you know the 30s and 40s and in else in other places a little bit later. But that being said, um, I I think it would be foolish to just ignore the strategic, this the you know the strategic and structural possibilities that actually having these massive funds have opened up for us. Um, I think I think you know unions, uh, uh, folks that are interested in these issues, should be really thinking about how is it that we can actually gain some control over these funds. Um, whether that be to sort of you know exercise some voice on corporate boards as sh- shareholders, or to sort of allocate the assets of those funds to punish um, punish corporations that are anti-labor. Um, or to sort of invest those funds in ways that are sort of socially responsible, that sort of like go into worker housing and sort of uh, projects that benefit the community. Uh, it seems to me that sort of, you know, while while uh, adopting uh, private pensions as, as an alternative to social security expansions was a bad thing, it also created this new institution that we should we shouldn't just ignore because it has it has uh, quite a lot of power. I mean, I, I can't think of any other institution which, which is connected to uh, directly to workers, which has t- control of 25% of all American corporate equity. That's, that's, that's a <laughs> massive structural leverage, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I don't think we should, um, even though the ideal is a, you know, a bigger social, social security system, I don't think we should ignore this, uh, what we have now and, and, and not try to use it for the better. That was Mike McCarthy on the transformations in and changing nature of pensions. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in a little while.